Okay, everybody, welcome. Um, we're really pleased to welcome you to the first in the Cafe Culture series of this year. Um, Cafe Culture is uh, a series which is designed to sort of open out our research, the research of um, the School of European Languages and Cultures at UCL, to the public and to engage the public with our research. Um, We've got a programme of, of several events this year, so we've got other events occurring throughout the, the year. So if you do enjoy tonight, um, take a look at our programme. There might be other topics um, that you'd be interested in as well. But tonight's theme we're very excited about um, is vampires. And we really hope that you'll join in um, and feel free to move around the room if you're quite far uh, sort of towards the back and you can't hear, then there's plenty of space um, towards the front. Um, and you'll notice that there are some sheets uh, on your uh, chairs and pens. So um, we're, we're inviting you to think about vampires and to think about yourselves and to think about what might be vampiric about you, um, your personality, uh, uh, your life. Um, something might have already occurred to you. You might already have thought something while you've been sitting here. Or you might be inspired by our speakers. Our three speakers got very different talks. Um, they might give you some ideas. In any case, we, we invite you to uh, jot something down on the page and then later on during questions, Octavia and Georgia will come and um, pick up your sheets and display them around the room so you get a chance to see what other people have uh, responded to this. So we're going to be hearing three talks. Um, first, Joe Wilde, then Susanna Cord and Titus, and I'll um, introduce them properly in a minute. Um, then we'll have uh, a Q&A, so you'll be able to put any questions in a sort of plenary format to the speakers. And then what we're going to do for the last bit of the evening is um, the speakers and the organisers will come and mingle with the audience. We've been trying to think of a better term than mingle, something more vampire-like than mingle, but it sort of fell down my to-do list. So we'll come and, and mingle with you. Um, and chat to you about what we've heard. Um, so you'll be able to um, speak to the, the speakers and us uh, about, about tonight's theme. And again, do feel free to kind of get up and go and make a beeline for whoever's talk you were most interested in, whoever you want to go and, go and speak to. You don't have to stay where you are. Okay, so um, we're going to start with Joe, Joe Wild, um, who is the author of Cuddles, uh, a play which was recently. Uh, put on at the Oval House um, Theatre in Oval. Um, and it's about a 13-year-old female vampire called, called Eve. So, Joe, do you want to um, take yeah, it away? Are. And okay. here's your first slide. Thank you very much. Uh, so, yeah, um, I was attracted to vampires as, as a topic because they're monsters and monsters interest me because they are creations of cultures throughout history. Uh, and in stories, uh, they take the place of like the ultimate antagonist, the thing that has to be defeated for the hero to get to the end of the adventure and, and win the day. Um, but I think a lot of them are stories in and of themselves. They, are, they tell us something about our understanding of evil, uh, our understanding of what is threatening to us. Uh, and each one, each successful monster, has sort of become a trope in its own right. Uh, and that's where it gets really interesting for me, because tropes are things that can be subverted 
uh, and they're a great, great way of sort of reaching an audience uh, through a very, very specific language, I suppose. So what I want to investigate first is what you think of as vampires, okay? And we do that by playing a game. Uh, I'm going to show you a series of pictures, and uh, if you think you see a vampire, then I want you to hiss, and ideally make the sign of the cross as well, <laughs> to ward them off. So it's a kind of kind of thing, or with your teeth if you don't want to hurt your throat. So let's give it a try. Um, vampire? Yeah. It's pretty clear. Vampire? Yeah. Vampire? Yeah, a couple of people recognise him. Vampire? Yeah, good. Vampire? Yeah. Some people still think it's a vampire. Vampire? Good, some people have seen the film. Vampire? Oh, interesting. Vampire? 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 <laughs> See a couple of kisses, vampire? Okay, so that's my vampire. Um, uh, so what I'm doing there is, everybody's going to have their own idea, maybe, uh, of what makes a vampire a vampire. Uh, and that's kind of something I... That was my jumping-off point when I wanted to write about it and include it in my stories. Uh, so the first question I asked was, what makes a vampire a vampire? Any ideas? What's a vampire? Blood. Blood. Sucking blood. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. What else? Sorry? Ever immortal? Immortality? Okay, yeah. Anything else? Addiction. Addiction. Can't go out in the sun. Addicted to... Blood. To blood. Killed by sunlight or avoid sunlight, certainly. Anything else? Can I get two ones? Yes. One is that we always used to think of evil. Evil, okay. Okay. <laughs> so, used to be evil. Uh, okay, so, imaginary. Okay. What about if, if I asked you what a vampire looked like? What do they look like? Pale, good. Pointy teeth. Yeah, anything else? Quite oh, interesting. Oh, attractive. Interesting. Okay. What about, um, what are their strengths? What are their abilities? Flight. Transformation into animals. Strong, super strength. Yeah. What about their weaknesses? Garlic. Garlic. Yeah. Sunlight. Holy water. Crucifixes, yeah. Stakes through the heart. I'm, I'm also weak against stakes through the heart, personally. Um, good, okay. So all of these uh, strike me as quite Western, uh, post-Stoker concepts of vampires. Um, and, you know, when I started researching what vampires were in general, because vampire myths exist in nearly every culture, uh, almost every culture across history has had some kind of vampire and I was interested to see what linked them all 
Some of the pictures I showed you back uh, had vampires that were basically old ladies that traveled as fireballs, um, women that could divide at the center and float around and suck blood through long tongues, uh, creatures that fed on the unborn fetuses of pregnant women. Um, Japanese vampires could detach their heads uh, and the heads floated around after people. So I saw a whole kind of plethora of different uh, characteristics. Uh, so the next question was, what's the non-negotiable? How do we know a vampire is a vampire? What absolutely must it have? What is it that separates it from other monsters? Sucking blood. Sucking blood. That's, the, that's what I came down on at the end of the day, was, was this draining of essence in some way, if not necessarily blood. And also the addiction to that, the fact that it was a compulsion. You don't usually get optional vampires. <laughs> People that just fancy blood a bit. You know, their dents tend to be a drive. Either they... Uh, is an addiction, or actually that's what sustains them. They sustain themselves through blood, like vampire bats. Um, so that's what I leapt on for my players. Like, okay, if she is nothing else, she's going to feed on blood. And I was particularly interested in the idea of addiction. Um, I do apologise about the... <laughs> not quite fitting on. Uh, that does say represent. Uh, what do vampires represent to us? So the next thing I thought about, with all monsters, this is true, but also particularly vampires, is that all monsters are analogies. I mentioned at the start that they come from our conception of what is evil and what is threatening. So, for example, the werewolf uh, talks about you know, our animal nature, the violent id side of things that can manifest itself. Also, something of madness uh, in the idea of the lunar cycle and that kind of stuff. Godzilla, modern monster, all about nuclear tampering. Um, so vampires, I mean, Dracula, for example, struck me as a very Victorian analogy of a vampire. You know, he was sexually predatory. He had a taste for young virgins. Uh, there was this kind of slightly prurient quality to him. And he was sort of this tall, threatening foreigner that preyed on young virginal women. Um, nowadays, the more modern vampires, like you said, they tend to be good, quite empathetic characters, still very sexy. Uh, most of them. Uh, Nosferatu was a very good German vampire, I thought. It was very kind of German expressionist style. So I was thinking about addiction and this need for consumption and what that meant in 2013. What could that represent to me? What, what did that make me think of, uh, particularly as a kid? And I started working on this play at about the time of the London riots. Uh, when the whole country ended up going a bit crazy and youths were taken to the street and smashing shops and grabbing big bags of pasta and TVs and <laughs> trainers and whatever. And that obsession with consumption struck me as this interesting kind of parallel to vampires. Um, this idea of consuming in the way that advertisements and modern culture and capitalism in general pushes particularly the young to consume and consume and consume and, and that's the way almost that we build our identities as young people is what you have, what you buy, what you own um, what you post on Facebook and uh, that for me was an analogy that struck me as interesting to vampirism I was also interested by uh, reading up a little bit about how vampire myths got started particularly in Eastern Europe and one of the original ideas about vampires in, in Eastern Europe was the idea that they came back to prey specifically on their family. Uh, not just one regret, they came back to kill their family. Uh, and, you know, the reason 
posited is that it was the same disease that killed them, killed their family. So you'd often see the families of victims dying shortly after and wasting away in a similar way they had. But that struck me as interesting, particularly when you combine it with this idea of draining. What if you don't just drain blood? Uh, what if we talk about draining emotion or draining essence, draining money? Uh, and that made me think of my parents. Uh, and so I decided to write a mother and daughter tale of vampirism, um, particularly about this sort of addictive quality that this young woman has. The fourth question I asked myself was, what is it like to be a vampire? I mean, seriously. You know, I think it gets romanticised a lot. I wanted to really go back to the, the boring little details. Okay, so sunlight hurts you. How? Why? What is it in sunlight? Is it the UV rays? Do you still get UV rays from other places? Can you get them from UV lamps? Would you die on a sunbed? How long after the sun sets can you go outside? Are the UV rays still there? What if it's infrared? What is it exactly about sunlight? What would life be like if you could never go out at night? What is the nutritional content of blood? If I was going to drain your blood, how the hell would I go about it? If, if I bit you in the neck now, I fancy that most of your blood would be on the floor, be on the carpet. Very, very little of it would actually be consumed by me. Um, so boring little details and the reality... Uh, the almost sort of dirty, boring reality of vampires was something I wanted to explore. So, for example, uh, Eve fed on her mother, specifically using an intravenous drip. So I thought that's probably the most convenient and spill-free way of uh, drinking somebody else's blood. Uh, and I also thought she probably needs to eat other stuff. Uh, blood's not going to be enough. So uh, she also ate jam sandwiches, because, you know, I liked the idea of jam and blood being sort of consistent, uh, and the idea of jam something very wholesome about jam. Uh, and the fifth question was, what if it was me? Because vampires aren't monsters anymore. You rightly said, you know, they're often good people. Uh, so if, we t- if, if you're the main character, if Hamlet, our Hamlet was a vampire, then, you know, what does that mean to us? And in general, characters in plays are defined by what they want and what's stopping them getting it. And so as an obstacle, vampirism is a pretty big one. Uh, so then the question was what does she want if she's a vampire Um, and I'm not going to answer that question yet because I want you to think a little bit we'll probably come back to this later because I think I'm nearly out of time but during today I'd like you to come up with your own modern vampire myth using some of the methods that I went through to come up with mine Uh, and that's finding one particular characteristic of the vampires that interests you Uh, then finding a modern analogy for that what does that mean to us what is that a parable of Uh, And then finally, place it in a very modern context and think about how exactly that would work in real life. Okay? Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Joe. That was lovely. And um, really making us think about the kind of the the reality of being a vampire. What would that be like? Which we probably don't think about. We haven't thought about that before. Thank you. I'm going to introduce um, Susanna Cord now. Um, Susanna is a professor of German at UCL. Um, She's a cultural historian. She's written on a number of subjects from German literary history of the 18th century to Hollywood movies. And her talk is going to be about female vampires and what literary history has done to them. Um, Yeah, I've got it. Great. Thank you very much. Already about to do <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I am not a hot young playwright, and so I need a paper to plot, uh, and it also means class, uh, because I am a professor, I'm going to have to start this off with a pop quiz, right? So three questions, very quickly, two of them are show of hands, one of them is yell out the answer quickly without thinking. Question number one, show of hands. How many of you have had to study Shakespeare in school or college? Show of hands? Right, everybody, okay, educated audience here. <laughs> Question number two, how many of you have had to study vampire literature or horror films in school or college? Show of hands? Considerably fewer. <laughs> Question number three, when you think vampire, what is the first name that occurs to you? Dracula. Yeah. Very good, very good. Okay, you've just confirmed um, to me um, uh, two suspicions that drive my interest in vampires, particularly female vampires. First of all, sophisticated readers, such as yourselves, and uh, academics, such as myself, don't actually talk about vampires very much, um, unless they are, as, as Joe has said, um, vampires in, uh, in pop culture. You don't do it in the context of so-called respectable literature. And secondly, even when we do um, sink to the occasion, we tend to interpret vampires as male, our first um, and that's, of course, Stoker's fault. So it might surprise you to hear that until that patriarchal uber-bloodsucker Dracula erased that entire literary history from public memory, most vampires in European literature were, in fact, women. female. That's right, they were, in fact, women. So why are they interesting? Because I think it is very easy to draw a link between, um, uh, between male vampires and men Right, about a sort of men in, I don't know, with long teeth and black capes. But it is, in fact, much more difficult to draw a direct link between a female vampire and women. And that is, I think, because uh, both, but particularly women, have been defined via their sexuality um, for, for most centuries up to, um, up to this one. So male vampire defined, uh, uh, equated to men man defined by sexuality, well, you can see that, right? You can see the vampire bite as a sexual act, right? As a form of sex or a form of rape, penetration, and all that, right? But if you define women through their sexual function, which means up until this century, or up until, let's say, the middle of the last century, through motherhood, um, there isn't that equation anymore. Um, she does not, uh, she is, the female vampire, I think, is the antithesis of motherhood. She doesn't feed her offspring, not really. She feeds from her offspring. Right? She doesn't give life, she gives undeath, a form of eternal life, but not real life. Um, she is, disturbingly, independent of a father. Right? She has absolute prerogative over her uh, procreation, and she can, like a man, produce as many offspring as she wants and for as long as she wants. There is no biological clock. So in the world of female vampires, gender simply makes no sense because the body is decoupled from procreation. Um, she has only one sex organ, and that is the mouth. The womb is sort of beside the point here. You also have to think about it a little philosophically. What is the purpose of a female vampire's life? Um, she does, she lives forever. And therefore, she, there is no need to procreate, to inject meaning into her finite existence. There is no need to procreate her species. None of that um, applies. So female vampires, very interestingly, are not only undead, they are also unsexed. 
And that is why I think feminist historians um, like myself are very interested in them. Um, and that is also why, conversely, in traditional literary history, they have sort of disappeared. I think there is a hefty dose of denial in traditional literary history. Even where vampires appear in texts, they are sort of interpreted out of them. Now, I would like to give you one classic example of this, namely the standard interpretation of the Grimm's famous tale, Snow White, uh, of 1808. To the best of my knowledge and to my boundless surprise, nobody has ever read this tale as a vampire tale. But it contains a queen obsessed with eternal youth and beauty, which is a vampire theme. It, uh, it contains a girl whose very name is derived in part from blood. There is one scene where um, there is a heart cut out as proof of death, which is a vampire theme. A coffin that does not hold the dead, a body that refuses to decay, a revenant, and of course a mirror. The mirror is practically the main protagonist in Snow White. Um, so here's the beginning of the tale, which you all know. If only I had a child whose skin was as white as snow, whose cheek and lips were as red as blood, and whose hair was as black as the ebony wood of the window frame, sighs the queen. Soon afterwards she gave birth to a daughter whose skin was as white as snow, whose cheeks and lips were as red as blood, and whose hair was as black as ebony wood, and thus she was called Snow White. Now that is strange logic. Why thus? I mean, the thus sort of denies um, that there is any hint of blood, right? uh, Snow White, where's the blood? Where's the black? Where's the red? Thus she was called Snow White. As if this were not enough, Snow White is a revenant, although her interpreters have determinedly misread the tale, namely her state after eating the poisoned apple, to, uh, apple as apparently dead, or as though she were dead. These are direct quotations from the literature. The tale itself, however, leaves us in no doubt, I think. But scarcely did she have a bite of it in her mouth and she fell down dead on the ground. That's what the tale tells us. So this, you might think, is unequivocal, right? Snow White is not sick, not dying, not in a coma. She's dead. She's passed on. She is no more. She is a stiff, bereft of life. She lives in, she, she rests in peace. If they hadn't put her in a coffin, they would be put, she would be pushing up the daisies. She's kicked the bucket. She's shuffled up a morph coil. This is an ex-princess. So the mirror, the mirror tells us that it's true, right? The mirror is introduced into the tale as it spoke no falsehoods. And it confirms this fact to the queen in the joyous news that now she is now the fairest in the land. Um, the tale, again, confirms it to us, I think, too seriously not to be taken seriously. When they got home at nightfall, the dwarfs found Snow White lying on the ground, and she was not breathing. She was dead. They lifted her up, looked to see if they could find anything poisoned, loosened her body laces, combed her hair, washed her with water and with wines, but nothing helped. The dear child was dead, <laughs> and dead she remained. This is an ex-princess. Like a vampire, Snow White does not decay. In death, she looks, this is another quotation, as fresh as a living person. The comparative, as fresh as, of course, indicates to anybody who knows their grammar that a living person is precisely what she is not. And here's another comparativos in Irrealis. Snow White lay a long time in the coffin but did not decay. 
but rather looked, here it comes, as though she were sleeping, indicating, of course, that sleeping is precisely what she is not doing. So the determined misreading of Snow White as alive and appearing as though she were dead, rather than, as the tale tells us directly, dead and appearing as though she were sleeping, is, of course, one way of whitewashing the vampire. You turn um, the, the vampire, red as blood, into the princess, uh, white as snow. Scholars of literature have apparently not picked up on this, but graphic artists certainly have. This, I don't know if you can see this on the left, but this is Laura Ambrose's Goth Princesses series, Snow White, um, on the left from 2007, uh, versus, of course, the Disney Snow White with the apple. Um, as you may or may not be able to see, Snow White, the vampire, bites into a human heart, and she still manages to look rather cute doing it. <laughs> so this whitewashing of the vampire um, is, is also occurs in what is today one of the most standard interpretations of the tale, namely, of, I speak, of course, of Bruno Bettelheim's psychoanalytic tome, uh, 1976, The Uses of Enchantments, in which what he does is he invents a male object of lust and love and competition into a tale that actually shows no sign of any such person. In the Grimm's tale, the king only appears twice and only in a purely mechanical role necessary to engender the tale. Number one, he inseminates Snow White's mother, and number two, he marries the evil stepmother. These essential functions accomplished, he disappears. So he plays neither a role as the queen's husband nor a role as Snow White's father. This, however, has not prevented Bettelheim from casting him in a central role. Um, we are told nothing, he writes, about her relation, Snow White's relation to her father, although it is reasonable to assume that it is the competition for him which sets stepmother against daughter. Why, we might ask, is it necessary to assume this? Because, we might answer, the story of Snow White um, is not read literally, but metaphorically. It's not read as a tale of the vampire, but as a tale of women. And it is, of course, women in the gender ideology of the time, by which I mean Bettelheim's time in the 1970s, as well as the Grimm's time, turn of, turn of the 19th century, are creatures whose entire existence is presumed to exhaust itself in the competition for a man, even if, as Bettelheim reluctantly admits, the person for whose love the two are in competition is not mentioned. Now, as a literal reader, I might conclude that person doesn't exist. So I tell you all this because I think most sophisticated readers, and certainly most scholars, do exactly the same thing. We whitewash the vampire um, where it does appear in the tale. We sort of deny her existence. Um, where the whole story is about a vampire, we deny the relevance of the text or the quality of the text. I think Stoker's Dracula is one example. It's gotten horrible press um, throughout the century. Um, so against this trend, I would like to uh, pose a simple question. Um, what to you is the meaning of vampires in literature and film? Um, is there anything... Do do they simply entertain people like me who have apparently lost all sense of taste and <laughs> propriety? Or do they actually have something to say about ethical questions um, that we obviously much rather avoid, but that we need to tackle as a matter of urgency? And if that is the case, is it not worth to engage with these questions, even if it means tangoing with a vampire? 
social problems, popular culture, and youth culture. And he's going to be talking about changing representations of the vampire in horror film. Yeah. Yeah? Thank you. Um, Debbie asked all of us to uh, say something about why we were personally interested in vampires. For me, it's definitely the teeth. <coughs> um, <laughs> I spent about five years having all kinds of medieval instruments of torture in my mouth when I was a young, young, young boy, and, and, but still failed to get them as my dentist would have wanted. But interestingly, I bumped into her like 10 years after this gruesome torture, and, and she was like, oh, what handsome vampire teeth you have. <laughs> so, hence, I'm here. Um, <coughs> um, more professionally speaking, uh, as Debbie mentioned, I am a, a sociologist of religion specifically, and I'm interested in vampire film, not just obviously because of the uh, entertainment value, but also in the sort of function that uh, what do films and vampire sp films specifically tell us about uh, how uh, the, the role of religion in society? How does film reflect on the one hand and on the other hand construct the role of religion in, in society? And I'm, I'm in a lucky position that I'll let my data do uh, much of the talking today. So I'll show you two clips just to sort of demonstrate what I'm, what I'm getting at here. The first one is uh, <coughs> from Hammer Films, the legendary Hammer Films in the UK, um, 1970 film, Lust for a Vampire. Um, we can talk about the, 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 the uh, uh, scripts and story. It's basically, it's a modern day version of, of uh, Le Fanu's uh, Carmilla. I'll just, show, I'll just give you a bit of context to this, uh, this, this particular scene. Um, there's been a, a suicide, or at least what is considered at the moment to have been a suicide, at a uh, girls' boarding school. And the, this discussion is between uh, the doctor, uh, a, um, the father of the uh, deceased uh, girl, and, and the medical doctor. The theory is perfectly consistent with my examination. A heart attack, probably during the fall. A quite usual occurrence. And there are certain reprehensible aspects of the matter goes without saying. I should certainly like the chance of a word with this Dr. Froheim, whoever he may be. But there were these marks on her throat. I can give no explanation of them. Tell me, Doctor, do you think there's any truth to these stories that they tell? Vampires? Oh, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I'd be willing to believe anything before I even imagine that Susan could... You did say there was a great loss of blood. Understandable in the circumstances. If they were the circumstances. Mr. Perry, I told you, I cannot with certainty say that your daughter died for any reason but that her heart stopped beating. They're arguing about it now. But there's no argument about the marks on the girl's neck. Fritz saw them himself. Yeah, there's the schoolmaster, too. Heart attack, he said. There's evil in that castle and always will be. 
I can do nothing. We are talking about matters beyond science, about the dark imaginings of men, about metaphysics, the nature of good and evil. You don't need a doctor. You need... This looks a comfortable enough place. I've had my fill of journeying for today. Hammer films are always so subtle. Um, so, there you got the whole thing. I mean, a medical doctor cannot possibly have an opinion about vampires because that's beyond uh, medicine. And then, as it happens, the bishop runs into the place and happens to uh, represent the person or the kind of knowledge that you need in order to, you know, know something about vampires. Anyway, I'll... Did you see anything about from that? It was very dark. Yeah, um, this will be even darker. But uh, let's let's hope you can. Um, where's the play? Oh, there. Yeah, yeah. That, that's it. Yeah. <coughs> then I have to uh, fast forward a little bit so I don't run out of time. This is from. Let me just. Right. This is from the film Blade 2. Uh, Blade is a vampire hunter, um, and this film, film series is based on a, on a comic book originally. And Blade is a vampire hunter, and in this second uh, uh, sort of installment of the series, he's called by vampires to actually help them to hunt a new form of vampire. But during that sort of meeting, we also um, learn a lot of interesting things about what vampires actually are. Father. Blade, this is Overlord Eli Damaskinos. It has been said, be proud of your enemy and enjoy his success. In that regard, I should thank you. Eliminating Deacon Frost. You did us a favor. Carol Coonan. You're human? Barely. I'm a lawyer. European Health Consortium. As you may know, vampirism is an arbovirus carried in the saliva of predators. In 72 hours, it spreads through the human bloodstream, creating new parasitic organs like cancer. has evolved too. We've encountered a new one. We've dubbed it the Reaper strain. And like any good pathogen, it appears to have found a carrier. There, Jared Nomak. Born a vampire by an anomaly like you. Unlike the rest of us, however, he feeds on not just humans. But vampires as well. Looks like he was doing me a favor. You're missing the point. Their vampire victims don't die. They turn. They become carriers. You've got to understand. These things are like crack addicts. They need to feed daily. Nomad's been out for 72 hours. By our estimates, there are already a dozen reapers. There'll be hundreds before the week's out. Thousands within a matter of months. Do the math. 
Wait, let me get this right. You want me to hunt them, but you... There you go. Let me get this straight. Um, can we have light, some, some light? I'm feeling a bit weird here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, there you go. I mean, if you listen to the language, that tells you quite a lot. I mean, the previous clip was about the nature of good and evil, things beyond science, meta metaphysics. This is crack addicts. It's the virus. It spreads in the bloodstream, blah, 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 and so on. So vampires have become, in this type of story, vampires have become completely medicalized, if you will, and become a matter of, of science rather than, than religion. Now, so my sort of question then was that, is this sort of a reflection of, of the much-talked-about secularization of society? That um, is, are, are vampires, do they have to kind of secularize with society? Although that is a contested term, of course, but, but uh, is this a sort of a reflection of that? And at, at the outset, it's of, it, of course, kind of um, looks like that. Although, I mean, we've had um, twists of the vampire sort of religion and vampires earlier as well, if you remember um, uh, the uh, Fearless Vampire Killers from 1967, there's a scene, the, the comedy uh, by, yes, Roman Polanski, thank you. Um, there's a scene where the, uh, they actually do this, uh, that the Fearless Vampire Killers to a vampire, and the vampire just stands there and says, sorry, I'm Jewish. <laughs> uh, and, uh, so there have been variations of that kind of crucifix um, theme nevertheless before, but this is a completely new discourse, if you will. The medicalization, scientification, if you will, of, of the vampire. And so the easy answer would be, right, okay, this makes sense in our secularized society. But then again, secularization, like I said, is not straightforward. And secondly, I think this, the Blade series especially, and some other films who have kind of followed up on the, on the sort of medicalized vampire theme, I think they reflect, instead of, of a sort of a um, disjuncture from the past, from religion and what we had, they actually, I think, they reflect a continuum uh, and continuing uh, interest in sort of what Max Weber, the German sociologist, called enchantment. So we still want to kind of transcend our everyday mundane lives and sort of and, and these are the vehicles uh, how to do it, but we don't find that transcendence, that enchantment anymore in sort of institutionalized religion as we used to before, but rather in, in sort of you know, science and what, what science can do for both good and bad. I mean, if you've ever heard um, Richard Dawkins talk, you, you'll know what I mean. I mean, he, he preaches like a prophet, basically, but obviously not about religion, but, but about science. So... The question, I guess, if there's a question to be sort of put to the audience, is that, is that if that is the case, and I'm happy to argue uh, uh, about that, but uh, um, we talked about all kinds of, and especially sort of what we heard, heard before, there's always an interest in morality and good and evil. What if vampires are uh, the pr product of viruses? What does that do with the sort of morality of the figure of the vampire in the modern world? Thanks.